0: You're listening to the City on a Hill DFW Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church or to support these ministries, visit us at cityonahilldfw.com. So are we are we in church or in a salon in Uptown Dallas? I'm trying to in the 80s. I, that's the first I've heard that bumper. And uh, I had to do everything I could not to dance. And I don't even like dancing. Uh, that, was really, that was really good. Good morning. Glad that you are with us. Open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. You know, there's a lot, of, a lot of talk that's happened over the last few years about the year 2020. A lot of things that we talk about with regard to that year that happened. One of the things that's interesting about the year is the way that you're produced so many popular movies, shows, and songs that enjoyed about five minutes of fame and then totally vanished. You know, like Tiger King, anyone? I still have never seen it, Uh, true story, never seen it. Uh, Hamilton, amazing musical, incredible, all the rage, no one talks about it anymore. Uh, The Weeknd's Blinding Lights, it was all over the place, it was on, I think, video games, TikTok probably made that famous, I'm not real sure. There were some things that just, like, really, really got super popular for a moment, and I think because everybody was stuck at home and consuming media at record pace, We just chewed it up and spit it out and moved on, way quicker than we normally do in sort of a normal setting. One show that enjoyed more fame than just the year 2020, in fact, it's continued to grow uh, throughout the years that it has been in existence, which it it began in 2020, is the show Love is Blind. Um, I've never seen it. I uh, read my Bible and pray and uh, fast. Uh, I'm just kidding. I I do watch TV and movies. I I have honestly never seen an episode of the show, but I did see, I read an article about it this week, that it just enjoyed its highest viewership since it started. It's currently in season four, at least has one more confirmed season, season five. Uh, and, And I'm not really big into reality TV shows. It's a reality TV show. I'm pretty worn out by just regular reality. Like I don't need reality TV in addition to that. But Love is Blind is a reality TV show wherein a selection of men and women date one another over the course of several days, and they decide through this dating process who they're most connected with, with the goal of eventually marrying that person. The catch is they can't see each other. So they're in these little pods, and they date one another through uh, speech. They talk, they connect, but they can't actually see each other. They don't see each other until they get engaged, okay? Um, And then they spend a month Together, they plan a wedding, and then at the wedding, if both of them say, I do, then I guess they win. I'm not really sure exactly how it works, but true American art, isn't it? Um, It's a bit of a social experiment that seeks to determine whether or not blind love can guarantee true and lasting love. In fact, the creator of the show uh, talked about this, uh, talked about the popularity of the show in in a recent interview. He said, everyone wants to be loved for who they are on the inside. Doesn't matter where you live, what you look like, how old you are, what your background is, which class you know or social structure you feel like you're a part of, everyone wants to be loved for who they are. Now, I would agree that at the end of the day, people want to be loved for who they are. I I have no disagreements with that whatsoever. The question on the table is, is blind love really the answer to that problem? Is it blind love that gets you there? The famous British theologian G.K. Chesterton Wrote in his well known work, Orthodoxy, uh, something quite the opposite. He said, This love is not blind. That is the last thing that it is. Love is bound. And the more it is bound, the less it is blind. Chesterton argued that the fullness of love really depends wholly upon the commitment that the individuals have to their vows for love. In other words, you will be loved in as much as a person's vow to love you. True and lasting love requires a deep and abiding commitment that that no matter the circumstances that you face will always uphold itself based upon your vow to that person and nothing else. Not the blindness of the love, but the boundedness of it, the connectedness of it. Today we begin the second half of 1 John. We've been in a verse by verse study uh, over the last 12, 13 weeks through John's little letter that we refer to as 1 John. And what we're gonna find in verse 11 this morning it's a bit of a thematic shift. If you remember all the way back to the beginning of our previous series, Under Construction, we talked about how 1 John has two major themes throughout it, two major sort of overarching themes that encompass the entirety of the letter. In 1 John 1.5, we saw the first major theme. John said, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, And in him is no darkness at all. This is really the first theme of the first half of 1 John. God is light. And that theme served, if you think back through the last several sermons, it served as sort of the foundation of every sermon we've been through thus far. God is light. We should walk in him. And and here's how it plays out. Right with regard to confession and and the work of Christ in our lives and those who leave the faith and apostasy and all these things that we've talked about, really the the central kernel of truth in the middle of every one of those sermons is this, this idea that God is light and if we belong to him, we should walk in him. Now, this morning... We come to 1 John chapter 3, verse 11, and we're introduced to the second major theme. John sets it up exactly how he did the first one. This is in verse 11 of chapter 3. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that you should love one another. So notice on the screen here, I'll try to get out of the way of everybody without looking like Vanna White... Um, <clears throat> You can see how each of these line up. This is the message we have heard from the beginning. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning. He is establishing a pattern here in the letter and he's sort of re-beginning the letter now with this new theme. That not only is God light, But that, he's going to get to in chapter 4, God is love and that we should therefore, if we belong to God and we are in him, in Christ, we ought to love one another. So in the Under Construction series, we talked about the practical implications of what it means to live in the light because God is light. Now, in this new This is Love series, we're going to be talking about the practical implications of what it means to live in love with one another since God is also love. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to begin our time in this new series just unpacking the definition of love. I wanna talk about what really is love according to 1 John. In, in 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18, we find some really good descriptions of love, all of which I think are very helpful as we move through the rest of this letter. If we're, we're gonna walk in love, if we're gonna love one another as we've been commanded to do, then we need to understand what it means first to just love. What What does the Lord mean by this? What is the definition from the Bible? And so let's jump in. The first thing that we find here this morning is that love is the mark of genuine faith. It's the mark of genuine faith. Look at verse 11 again. John says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. This is the commandment, the message that you have heard from the beginning. Now, a good Bible study question, good hermeneutic, which is a a real fancy word for interpretation. When we look at this, a good question to ask is What does John mean by the beginning? What does he mean by the beginning? Does he mean like the beginning of the world? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. Does he mean the beginning of Israel when he establishes Israel through the patriarchs? Does he mean the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1? Does he mean the beginning of the church age after Pentecost, Acts chapter 2? What beginning is John referring to? The answer to this question is actually a little bit more obvious than you might think. John has already more or less told us what he means by the beginning. If you go all the way back to the first three verses of this letter, he refers to the beginning and the context there tells us what he means. 1 John chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. John says, that which was from the beginning, there it is, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us that that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. It is very clear that by the beginning, John means the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. That which we have seen with our eyes, that we have touched with our hands, that we've heard with our ears concerning Christ, the incarnate Lord in our presence. So, so from the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, as what Jesus, or is what John is referring to here, this message that we have heard from that beginning point, Now, if you think about that, the the incarnation of Jesus, the beginning of his earthly ministry, Jesus had a lot to say concerning love. He spoke very specifically about the importance of loving one another often, but there's one place that comes to mind probably more than anywhere else, and that's in John chapter 13, which is incidentally also written by the apostle John. In John 13, John gives his account of uh, the Last Supper or the Lord's Supper, Matthew and Luke give an account of this as well, but but John talks about this moment a little bit differently. He gives a little bit different details than than Matthew and Luke give. Uh, Of course, this is, remember, right before Jesus is subsequently arrested, beaten, crucified, and then, of course, resurrected. But if you go into John 13, starting all the way back in verse 21, John writes this. He says, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and he testified, amen, amen, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at Jesus' side, so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. I love this description so much, because it's just so real, like it's such a real, you can sense the tension here, Jesus just said something really troubling, one of you is going to betray me, right? And it's like, and and he looks troubled in spirit, and given that John, he always refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved, he's the beloved disciple, he's the one sitting right next to Jesus, and so Peter's like, (laughs) and so verse 25 continues, so that disciple leaning back against Jesus said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give the morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And so when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now this is how slow the disciples really are. Jesus just told them, I'm going to dip my bread in this morsel. And the person I give it to is the one who's going to betray me. And he low-key dips it in the morsel and gives it to Judas. And they're like, who is it? <laughs> Verse 28 says, now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. <laughs> it's just, how are you this slow? Verse 30. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Night, by the way, in John's literature is always a bad place. But then look at verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. Now pause for a moment. We're going to just take a side note here because this is, I think, a, this is a really profound passage. This is one of the most profound passages in the New Testament, in my opinion. Jesus having just been betrayed by Judas, who was just possessed by Satan, who had just set out to go get the guards to get Jesus arrested and beaten and crucified to execute the Lord. In that moment, Jesus chooses to say, now is the Son of Man glorified, right now. This passage, I think, speaks so clearly to the sovereignty of God, that whenever people betray God or rebel against him, or mock him. They think that somehow I'm diminishing God's glory, right? People who set themselves against God, who, who speak against him, who mock him, who rebel against him, they think I'm, I'm tearing God down. I'm diminishing God's glory. But God has worked all things together in such a way that even in the actions of rebellious, sinful, ignorant people, Christ will be glorified. And it's in this context that Jesus gives the new commandment. Look at verses 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus chooses this moment, a moment of betrayal, to issue this new commandment. The implication here is that this is how people will know that you are a Christian, by your love for one another, even in less than perfect circumstances. It's one thing for people to see you being charitable and kind towards other people when things are going well in your life, when you're on the mountaintop, right? But what about when things are falling apart in your life? What about when you are in the valley? How loving are you towards other people when life is particularly difficult? Jesus is saying, your love in those moments set you apart. It reveals that there's something different about you. It reveals genuine faith because the world doesn't act like this. The world doesn't love in these moments of difficulty. People in the world act the opposite of those who are genuinely saved, who have genuine faith. In fact, John goes on to make that point. Look at verse 12. He says, we should not be like Cain. Who was of the evil one and murdered his brother? And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Now, at first, this seems like a very strange reference. Like it just like why all of a sudden why all of a sudden are we talking about Cain and Abel? It it seems almost very random. But if you keep reading, you see the connection that John is making here. Look at verses 13 through 15. He says, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. What John is doing here, it seems random at first, but there's actually a great connection to this whole point of loving others. He's using Cain and Abel as a case study of sorts, of how righteous people behave and how wicked people behave, for how genuine Christians behave and for how people of the world behave, and essentially asking Who are you more like? Are you more like Abel, a righteous person who acts out of love for those around him? Or are you more like Cain, a wicked person, a person who acts out of hate and envy, which ultimately leads to murder? In other words, to go back to last week's terminology, are you a child of God or are you a child of the world? Because you can't be both. Remember, they're in opposition to one another. The kingdom of the world and the kingdom of Christ are at war. They always have been, they always will be. So who are you more like? Are you more like the child of God, like Abel, or the child of the world, Cain? One who loves the brothers or one who hates and is envious towards the brothers and ultimately sets himself to murder the brothers? Because Jesus said, love is the mark of genuine faith. That's how people are going to know that you belong to me. That's how you know people, people will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another, even in the midst of trial and despair, even when people have betrayed you and turned their backs on you, and even when things are going horribly for you, your love in those moments towards the brothers is really going to mark the genuineness of your faith to the rest of the world. But notice that he's not just talking about any definition of love either, John has a very specific definition of love in mind, which brings us to the second point here this morning, which is that love is modeled by Jesus. Look at verse 16. John goes on and he says, by this we know love. We can be, in other words, we can be certain that what we're looking at is love. This is how we know, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brother's. There's a lot of definitions and ideas in our world today in 2023 about what love is. I read an article this past week from a uh, a very prominent magazine, and, and it was primarily about romantic love, which certainly is one kind of love, but not uh, not really the essence of what we're talking about here. Um, but the, I think the, the article illustrates the point that, that we're talking about this morning very well. The author of this article argued that there are all kinds of, of varying different kinds of romantic love. There's no there's no one kind of romantic love. And the context of this was particularly within the LGBTQ community, although uh, she did interact with with outside of that community as well. And, And she said that, you know, the love, for example, of a woman for another woman is a completely different kind of love than a love for a man towards another man. And those types of loves are both very different from how a man would love a woman or a woman would love a man, and even still different from a trans woman who loves a man, and so on and so forth. There are multiple kinds, in other words, Right? All different kinds, which is in and of itself such an unnecessary argument uh, and unhelpful, I think. But the best part of the article, after going through the whole thing, making this, this huge, huge point that love is complicated and it, and it varies in nature and, and you can't really pin it down. This is how she summarized it. But still, love is love. So lots of kinds of uh, different varying levels of love and, 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 and different shapes and different sizes. But at the end of the day, it's all the same. It doesn't really make any sense if you think about it. Uh, Beyond that, uh, the way that we use the term love is very complicated, specifically in the English language, and this is something that I have spent a lot of time thinking about. I did my undergraduate in linguistics. I love the way we use language, but sometimes the way we use language is just weird and and confusing, especially for people who are trying to learn our language. By the way, English is the most difficult language in the world to learn. I don't know if you know that or not. Uh, Second to uh, our second place is Mandarin. First is English. And it's because of what I'm about to describe to you, the sort of colloquial way we use different words. So uh, we have lots of ways we express different feelings with the word love. So let me give you an example. On any given day, let's say Saturday, I wake up. I might wake up and tell my wife first thing in the morning, I love you, sweetheart. By the way, I did read a statistic this week, guys, that uh, men who tell their wives they love them and kiss them in the morning live, uh, on average, five years longer. I don't know how they, av- know how they measure this. <laughs> this is a real stat. So, um, this is free advice. I'm giving you five years of extra life here, guys. <laughs> That's worth the price of admission. Yeah. Tell her you love her. Give her a kiss. Make sure she's awake first. Otherwise, it probably doesn't count. I don't know. I don't know how the rules work. <laughs> but I might wake up, and I might tell my wife, I love you. And, and, and then I might walk into the living room and find my kids watching cartoons and say, good morning, girls, I love you. I might even tell my dogs I love them. They're good dogs. And then I might suggest, let's go get coffee, to which my wife might respond, I'd love that. And we might go to a movie later in the day and watch actors and actresses that we love to watch on the big screen. We might go pick up food from a restaurant that we love to eat at, we might take it to a park to eat outside because we love being outside. And in every instance, I've used the word love to mean something slightly different, right? Slightly differently in every single context. The honest honest truth is that In our society today, in our country today, we have so confused the concept of love. We have so many definitions and ways of understanding it and ways of framing it, and it's created confusion both in and outside of the church. We have people in the church today who are seeking to, uh, or at least say they're seeking to obey Jesus' command to love one another, but they're applying their own definition of love instead of a biblical definition of love. And so it creates all kinds of chaos. How does Jesus define love? Love. How does Jesus define, or John rather, define love in this passage? He says, if you want to know what real biblical love looks like, look to the sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. That's how you know. That's the standard. That is the definition of love, the objective definition of love. When John says, we as Christians ought to love one another, that doesn't mean doing what we think is loving. It means modeling our love after the love that Christ has already demonstrated to us. Now, what does that mean practically? There are three sort of observations that I have towards Christ's love that I wanna share with you. The first is that it's certainly selfless. It's a selfless kind of love. I think one of the best descriptions of the selfless nature of Christ uh, could be found in Philippians chapter two. Paul talks about how Christ laid down his life for us, but he says a lot more than John does here in 1 John. Look at Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 3. If you want to go there, I'm going to have it on the screen for you as well. He says that the definition of selfless love looks like this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And by the way, uh, I want to just say uh, this idea of looking to the interest of others, uh, it it does not mean look only to the interest of others. He's not saying don't have any of your own interest. Sometimes I think we're guilty of the sort of self-martyrdom that totally rejects any of your self-interest. That's not what he's saying. You can have your own interest. Just make sure they don't overshadow the interest of other people. That's what humility and selflessness means. Putting others before your interests, but not totally negating your interests altogether. Verse five, he goes on. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. This is the model of love to which we are to look at. It is selfless. It puts others before our own interests. Secondly, it is satisfactory. In other words, the love of Jesus accomplishes that which it sets out to accomplish. Jesus didn't die in vain. Right, His death accomplished his objective, which was what? We talked about this a little bit last week. Verse 5 of First John chapter 3. He says, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. Jesus' love paid for our sin. Beyond that, he says in verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So Jesus love was satisfactory. In that, it pays our debt, it purchases sin or it purchases forgiveness for sin, it establishes a right standing before God the Father in heaven. But more than that, it destroys the works of the enemy. So Jesus love is selfless. It's satisfactory. It's sacrificial. In other words, there was a cost for it. There was a cost for it. He didn't just prioritize the needs of others and serve them as a servant, but he paid for that love with his own life. So I want you to evaluate yourself for a moment. When when you think about how you love other people, and and by the way, this others context here is Christians. It's other Christians. It can mean people outside of the church, and there are some passages wherein we're, we're just talking about your neighbor, which is literally just anyone, right? But in, I think, John's context, primarily, first and foremost, he's talking about other believers in your life. When you think about the way that you prioritize the needs of others, the way that you love others, I want you to ask yourself, is my love truly selfless? Is it selfless? Do I put others before my own interests? Or am I only loving others when it's convenient? Do I love others unconditionally or or do I only love them when my needs have been met first? Is my love selfless? Ask yourself, is my love satisfactory? In other words, is is my love accomplishing anything? Or is it just sort of being thrown out there with with no real effect? Ask yourself, is my love sacrificial? What does it cost you to love other people? Is there a cost? What are you having to sacrifice in order to love those in your life? Because here's the deal. If if your love isn't any of these things, it isn't love. Not according to the, the, the biblical definition of it. Because look, apply this logic. You may be thinking, well, that's not right, Derek. I mean, it could can, it can be, you know, not selfish and not satisfactory and not sacrificial. It could still be love. Well, Okay, well, let's take that argument to the Lord and let's apply it to Jesus. If Jesus' love was not selfless, if it was not satisfactory, if it was not sacrificial, here's what it would mean. We're still dead in our sins. We still live under the wrath of God. And Christ has not fulfilled his messianic purposes, which makes him a liar. And we're all without hope. And we're not here right now. We're at brunch or hungover or somewhere else, right? Love must be these things. Love that isn't selfless, that doesn't do anything or that doesn't cost anything isn't love. It's not that it's cheap love. We gotta stop using that terminology. It's not cheap love, it's not love at all. Because this is love that he laid down his life for us selflessly, satisfactorily sacrificially and in turn John says we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and that brings us really to our last point here this morning love is the mark of genuine faith it is modeled by Jesus and finally love is materialized through action He continues in verse 17, he says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? He's not really asking you that question. That's a rhetorical question. He's saying God's love doesn't abide in a person who has the world's goods and sees a brother in need and doesn't help him out because love It's not primarily, you gotta hear this, it's not primarily demonstrated through words, but through actions. He says in verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So get this, it's not that it's wrong to communicate your love to people with words, right? And certainly there are some folks, myself included, who, who feel love In a lot of ways, primarily through words, words of affirmation, if you're going to use the love language terminology. There's no doubt that your words matter, okay? So don't walk away here hearing me say that your words don't matter. But I want you to hear this, because this is so important. The power of my words will either be amplified or diminished by my actions. you got to get that. The power of my words will either be amplified or diminished by my actions, so for example, if I tell my kids every day that I love them and that I'm proud of them, but I never show up to the things that matter, I never get involved in the things that matter to them, I never, I'm never down on their level and in their business in a, in a way that, that it feels involved and, and like I, I care, how quickly do my words diminish in their power? How quickly do they stop believing me? Last night... <clears throat> My daughters Camelia and Lydia had a gymnastics recital at uh, actually at the school where I attend, Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. And if I never, I was thinking about that as I was just thinking through this message, if I never came to these things, if I was never there, if I never cared about those things, how quickly would me saying I love you become this cheapened hollow thing that they don't care about at all? It it would be very quick. Same with my wife. If I never took my wife on dates, I try to prioritize that once a week, once every other week, depending on just the, the stage that we're in with, with different things with our children. But if I never showed her my love in practical, actionable ways, how long before she stops believing me when I tell her, hey, sweetheart, I love you? Because I'm saying that I love you, but I'm not really showing her or showing them. Love is materialized through action. As the great Lou Graham said, the lead singer of Foreigner, I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. My guy. Thank you. The biblical view of love says it's more than words. It's, it's about action, right? It's rooted in action. But don't miss the other part of this either, because it's just as important. He says deeds and Truth deeds and truth. You can do a lot of things for people under the guise of love, but if it isn't built on truth, it's hollow. It's worthless. It's not love. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 6, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. So let me just be really honest with you. Sometimes Christian love looks unloving to the flesh. You, you, You need to wrestle with that one. Sometimes Christian love looks unloving to the flesh because the flesh rejects the truth. And Christian love is oriented, it's built on truth. Sometimes the most loving thing that you can do for another person will be viewed as unloving or judgmental by the world. It's just, and some of you have, have, have faced this, you know that what I'm saying is true because it's happened. Calling out sin in another brother or sister's life is loving. We have to agree on that. Some of you are not so sure about that. But here's the deal. If, if, if you apply this, again, to the extreme cases, we all agree. If you take this to the extreme, the extreme end, no one in the church, I hope, is arguing against this. For example, the alcoholic or the drug addict who is destroying their life and just a use away from ending their life. Sometimes the most loving thing that you can do in those instances is intervention. Intervention. It's calling the police. It's getting them arrested. It's getting them outside of a place where they can no longer bring harm to themselves. And, And sometimes that means going to extremes like that. That is a loving thing to do. Why? Because it's protecting them. Taking keys away from a drunk person who's trying to drive home is a loving thing to do, is it not? Because you're trying to protect them and you're trying to protect the people on the road. But what about when it's someone who's gossiping? What about confronting a gossip in the church? Is that loving? Well, of course it is because you're trying to protect them and you're trying to protect the people that they're gossiping about. You're trying to protect the relationships. You're trying to protect the unity within the body of Christ. I have have heard people in confrontation over this very sin say things like, well, that's just judgmental. No, it's not. It's Christian. It's the commandment of God. God. In the Bible, some of you need to love other people in your life through actions and not just words, but some of you need to love through truth. And and that means confronting people in your life in their sin and calling them to repentance, drawing boundaries in your life if they don't. You, listen to me, and, and this is gonna sound harsh, you have to really hate a person to avoid confronting them in their sin. You have to really hate them. Because what you're essentially saying is, I would rather them suffer and self destruct than get my hands dirty and potentially get into trouble. That's not selfless love. That's selfish. It's not how children of God act, it's how children of the world act. It's the opposite of love. Over the next several weeks, we're going to be talking through the implications of of what it means to walk in love, and now you know what it is. Whenever we talk about loving one another, and, and children of God loving the different things that God tells them to love, now you know what it is. This is love. It's the mark of genuine faith. It's how people know that you're legit. It's modeled by Jesus in that it is selfless it puts others before yourself. It's satisfactory. It, it accomplishes its goal or its objective. And it's sacrificial. It costs you something. And, and, and we see it primarily modeled to the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. And it is materialized ultimately through action and built on truth. If it's not those things, it's not love. It's something else. It's something you, you've bought into a lie. You've, you've bought into a facade because love is built on these things, it's defined by these things. Jesus laid down his life for us as a model of love and John says, we ought to do the same. Pray with me. Father, we confess we love you. We don't always love the way that we ought to love and so would you help us by the the ministry of your Holy Spirit and the living active power of your word would would you help change our hearts and change our minds would you sanctify us in your truth to be more loving as you would have us love and not as we ourselves think we should love would you help us see the commission to go therefore and make disciples of all nations as an expression of love Would you help us to see church discipline, rebuking, boundaries as an expression of love? And would you help us get outside of our own selves and sacrificially lay ourselves down for the sake of those around us that we might truly demonstrate the love that you've already modeled for us? Lord, I pray for anyone in here this morning who does not know who has never tasted this kind of love, the satisfactory, the, the, the objective of Christ's love, who's never walked in it because they've never confessed Christ as Lord, would you this morning, God, move in their hearts in such a way that leads them to repentance, that they would humbly confess you, that they are sinners and that they need a savior and that Jesus is that savior, he is that Lord. And Would you help us then walk in love with them the rest of their days? God, we're privileged and we know it. What a work you have done and you are continuing to do here in our midst. Help us get out of the way and follow you as examples to a dying world around us that your kingdom may shine brighter and brighter here at City on a Hill. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all that you've done and all you continue to do. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Hey, I want to remind parents, parent meeting in here after second service at noon. Hope to see you there. Lunch is provided. provided. God bless.